Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of how politics could appear in our preaching this week. My name is Geoffrey Farrer and I'm a Methodist minister based in Putney in southwest London. Before I was ordained, I spent 10 years working in the House of Commons as a clerk and I'm committed to connecting how we pray and read our scriptures to how we vote and how we live. Each week, I'm joined by a guest from a different place and space on the pulpit and political landscape. And today, I'm very pleased to introduce my colleague, the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Dean. Jonathan works in the Methodist Church's connectional team with responsibility for theological education and ministerial formation. He is a Methodist minister who has worked in local churches, as a chaplain to a prison and a university and in higher education, both in the UK and the USA. His interests include reading, music, politics, walking, running, drinking coffee, visiting new places and, and trying not to lose heart whilst supporting Norwich City FC. Well, Jonathan, it's lovely to have you uh, here with us today. And thank you very much for making the time to join us. Thanks. Now, we all know that politics in the pulpit can be a bit of a contentious topic but we also believe that it's essential that the world around us speaks into our churches. When you hear arguments, and we all do, saying that politics should not form part of our preaching, what's your response? Well, I, I suppose the short response, Jeffrey, is to say, um, I, I simply think that's wrong. <laughs> the, slightly, the slightly longer response, I suppose, um, j just it makes it makes no conceptual sense to me at all to kind of talk in that way. Uh, when I, uh, I guess I was sort of raised uh, in the era of, uh, well, I was raised in the 1980s. I grew up in the 1980s. So I, against the background of a Europe that was divided um, physically uh, in some, in some cases, but certainly ideologically, you know, by an iron curtain. Um, I grew up against the background of apartheid in South Africa and the struggles for justice that were happening there. And I think my, my, the kind of influences both on my faith and on my politics, um, have, have strongly kind of have, have strong roots in that sort of era of my own formation, really. So, you know, I'm sure other guests have quoted it before, but I, I, I was formed by the perspective of folks like Archbishop Tutu, you know, saying, you know, that when when people say that um, the Bible and the politics don't don't mix, they wonder he wonder used to wonder which version of the Bible they were reading. And in fact, my um, my my mentor when I began local preaching in my teenage years had that quotation um, on on the wall in the toilet. So every time I went to the loo when I was having my tutorials with her, uh, <laughs> I'd be reminded of of, of Desmond Tutu. Uh, on this but yeah. so I think I think you know it's just it was just kind of in my DNA really to um to see the two as intrinsically linked whether that's you know the the Old Testament background of 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 the great sort of Jewish vision of shalom of the wholeness of the flourishing of all creation um including human structures and systems or whether it's you know the language of Jesus about the kingdom of God which though it's rich and full and varied has to be something about the ways in which people live and the conditions in which they live um it goes really to the heart of what i think my faith is all about for me so that would be the longer answer to the question i guess well it's very good it would have been a very short podcast if you'd said no yeah, <laughs> it would. yeah i don't want to do that too. and i think i think you are the first person this season to mention desmond too to oh okay wrong. good so, there we are um yes so a man of great wisdom and uh yes sorely missed um, 
Now, each week uh, before we plunge in to the lectionary readings, uh, uh, my JPIC colleagues provide me with a few key news stories. And as always, there's much to think about this week. Um, the big news story, it seems, this week and over the weekend has been the proposed legislation relating to the, the small boats across the channel, which proposes to further restrict their rights, although it's unclear exactly what the new legislation will do that previous legislation has not done. And there's an intense debate over that. We watch with bated breath as um, the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine appears on the brink of falling to the Russian forces. But at the same time, we're hearing of disarray in, in the Russian forces from the Wagner Group in particular. More uh, closer to home in the life of the church, we are very firmly in the season of Lent. And if you've given up anything for Lent, it's now perhaps beginning to bite a bit more. Um, uh, we are in fair trade fortnight. And on Wednesday, we will be marking International Women's Day in various ways. And there are some good resources available on the Methodist Church website if you're interested. So with all that in mind, and with our metaphorical newspapers in one hand and our very real Bibles in the others, in the other, let's turn to our lectionary readings for this, which will be the, it must be the third Sunday in Lent. That's right, isn't it, I think. Um, I always have that conversation with the steward in the vestry immediately when they're going, when they're looking for the vestry prayer and they're saying, which one is it? Which one are we? So third Sunday of Lent. And we have readings from Exodus, Romans chapter five, John chapter four and Psalm 95. So, Jonathan, where would you like to start? Thanks, Jeffrey. Um, I think... Uh... There seems to me to be a sort of a, 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 a well, I say a metaphor. In fact, in both of uh, both the Exodus and the John readings, uh, we are asked to think about uh, literal journeys. Uh, so, the Exodus seventeen, uh, we kind of meet the people of Israel just after their liberation from slavery in Egypt. They've just been brought through the Red Sea and everything's looking rosy. And then all of a sudden there's this huge crisis uh, in their common life, a really, really basic crisis, which is um, a lack of water, mm. or at least the kind, a lack of the kind of water they think they ought to have. Um, and so Exodus 17 is about how Moses leads the people through that particular crisis uh, on their journey towards freedom and on their journey towards kind of learning what it means for them to be the people of God who have had this kind of shared experience of liberation. Um, and then on, and then in John chapter four, we have this, you know, very long, I always used to think when this story came up in the lectionary, you know, uh, that it's, it's extraordinarily long. And if we read the whole thing in, in church, we actually get um, a really, a, a long Bible reading, longer, longer than I guess we're mostly used to, which may be a good thing for us because we're sort of more used to uh, little bleeding chunks taken out of context so it's nice to have a whole long story um but it's a story about jesus on a journey uh and he comes across a woman from a different culture and and john gives us this really quite extended account um quite famous account now of, of this conversation that they have and 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 of the kind of ways in which that leads to um, some interesting things in the woman's community and in the ministry of jesus so i guess as i'm thinking about these two stories um uh, and particularly thinking about some of the context for political and and thinking about justice, I'm I'm struck by the ways in which, um, you know, the 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 way of Christian discipleship is not is not 
just an instantaneous thing. It is uh, to quote a book by Eugene Peterson that I used to love: uh, "A long obedience in the same direction." It's like a, it's um, it, you know, it's a long way. It's a journey. And 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 I was kind of thinking about this sort of image, really, uh, in relation to some of the questions of uh, human flourishing and justice that 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 perhaps uh, go to the heart of what this podcast is about. And I was re- remembering, you know, um, folks like Dr. King talking about uh, about how actually uh, being a Christian who is engaged in in changing political systems or engaged in trying to make the world a better or fairer place is a is a is a long haul kind of project. It's rarely a thing where you get results overnight. And um, for better or worse, you know, we are all of us on a journey and on a journey with Christ, on a journey towards understanding the mind of Christ better, on a journey towards uh, trying to make uh, the world look more like the kingdom of God. Um, but but it, but it's often a journey, I think, that feels like there are setbacks and there are twists and turns in the path. And um, I, I'm imagining that we also uh, have the kinds of obstacles along the way that the people of Israel encounter. Um, the place where this incident in Exodus 17 happens uh, becomes known as Massa and Meribah uh, mm. because the the people are tested and they quarrel, and um, those two words in Hebrew mean test and quarrel. And it strikes me that actually the journey of Christian discipleship, especially insofar as it involves a fight for justice, um, involves quite a lot of being tested and quite a lot of quarrelling too. A lot of the time, it's not always very clear to us. I think. Um, exactly what God demands of us and requires of us. So I think something about that sort of sense of uh, of, of the sort of long path uh, that we're that we're on as a Christian community as we strive to sort of make the kingdoms of this world or allow the kingdoms of this world to to, to more closely resemble the kingdom of of God. Yes. I mean, uh, very lots of sort of your your what you're saying makes lots of ideas sort of spring forth in my head the thing the parallel that immediately came to my mind was the um this and i just had to click on the um bbc web page there was about the marine treaty signed over the weekend and that uh wonderful th- you know incredible thing incredible achievement um uh protecting safeguard n- protecting uh, god's creation in the uh, in the oceans and I've heard various stories. Sometimes it says 10 years of negotiations, 15 mm. years of negotiations. It says on the BBC, um, uh, quite conveniently, decades of negotiation, <laughs> which covers all the bases. But what we know is that, and, and again, from my experience, is that agreements, especially multilateral agreements like this, do take decades. They take years and years and years of patient negotiation behind the scenes very unsexy, unexciting mm. stuff. And the sort of stuff that often politicians don't like to be too much engaged with because you get no instant reward. And we've talked about in this season before about uh, Harold Wilson's quote, you know, a week is a long time in politics. And and we want instant results. We want things happening now and in 24-hour news. But the reality is that good things take a very long time to build. And here we have the Exodus, and you started with the, the Exodus passage there, and there's always this question, isn't there, why on earth did it take 40 years to go from Egypt to the promised land when it's a journey that would take less than a year? Um, mm. 
And it's the idea of building that long walk, uh, to, to quote another South African leader, the long walk to freedom. Is there something there about, about that long journey and, and about, uh, and mm. as Christians, we have that longer term perspective with 2000 years of history? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and of course, our psalm for today, Psalm 95, talks about this incident in Exodus as being, mm. uh, you know, something which got sort of God rather irritated, such that such that the journey towards the promised land took a bit longer. And mm. there's a part of me, if I'm honest, that thinks that's rather unfair of God in that people were just asking for water, which seems like a fairly straightforward request to me. So I'm 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 wrestling with that and what might might have been going on. And I wonder whether it's something to do with the length of time it takes for us to be formed as the people of God, you know, um, and to come back to another theme that we might pick up on in the readings, that's about deepening of relationships. It isn't something that mm. happens instantaneously or um, magically overnight, you know, um, learning how to be the people of God so that God's world can be transformed um, by grace and by God's love isn't isn't a very easy or a very quick thing either. Um, and I wonder if there's something in in there about it, in in, in about that in it too. Um, to your to your point though um, about instantaneous things, I mean, mm. I, I'll try not to be too uh, sort of partisan about it, but I, I mean, this ought to be something that we have learned uh, in the last few years uh, in the whole context of our exit from the European Union. You know, we were. We we were. I'm going to try really hard not to be too partisan about this, but I mean, we we were promised all kinds of instantaneous things like mm. treaties with other countries that, of course, as you say, don't 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 happen overnight and can't because pol political processes, diplomatic processes, uh, don't work that way. And I I think I worry a little bit about the effect of, um, you know, the context we live in, the sort of the sort of social media age that we're in. Uh, in terms of our expectation that things will will happen really quickly or that um the world can be changed you know so so in some ways maybe it's a cautionary reminder of the fact that you know the great victories that we that we celebrate as examples of the kingdom of god breaking into the life of the world were themselves built upon um probably uh, well definitely years of things which probably weren't very sexy as you say and 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 took sort mm -hmm. of patient amounts of prayer and action and intentionality and you know um so you, you know i um um my, my my other half is from memphis tennessee and memphis tennessee uh hosts holds uh, the the national civil rights museum uh which is an amazing place and it's it's built into the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated. And it's it's an it's a it's a wonderful thing. But one of the things that I found most powerful about the National Civil Rights Museum was just the extent to which it highlighted um, the, the work and the witness of many, many faithful people that went that went unnoticed. Uh, you know, I mean, we th there are folks like like Dr. King and Nelson Mandela that you that you referenced, um, whose work we rightly celebrate, uh, but they themselves, you know, couldn't have done what they did unless they, a bit like Moses, were accompanied by a whole group of faithful people um, journeying along with them. Most of whose work isn't noticed, but but much of whose work was really painstaking and mm. uh, you know, took took years uh, of of patience, even in the face of the most appalling sort of setback and um, discouragement, really. Uh, 
so, so I think there's an awful lot in this and a lot in what you, in what you say as well, Jerry, about about how God might be inviting us um, into into greater patience or or a greater sense of the of, of the long path that, that that sometimes is ahead of us. And uh, there is just so many parallels. We talked a few weeks ago about the Northern Ireland peace process mm. and how that was a process that took decades. And it it was it was I think. Hindsight is always a much better thing, but you can see how that was the very politics at its very best mm. with politicians of all different parties over time, slowly, slowly, slowly working towards what would become the Good Friday Agreement, mm. but building upon layer and layer. And, mm. and, and the Marine Treaty we've just seen and um, many of the climate treaties we, are, we have seen. And... To contrast that again, if I was being very controversial with what we're seeing today and in, in the newspapers about small boats, a problem that has taken decades to evolve and the only solution, and everybody who is sensible is saying this on all sides is saying, well, the only solution is very detailed negotiations with other countries, long-term solutions to stop people wanting to come um, it's not going to come, but what we have see is a prime minister under intense pressure to to produce something, and so he's going to legislate, which is a very actually a very, and and from my time in parliament, it's quite easy to legislate. Much harder is enforcement, mm. uh, and yeah. and and what several voices have already said is actually what the proposed legislation will do nothing new. All these powers exist. It's enforcing, and you cannot stop people who are that desperate from coming. So, but of course, our news industry and many of us want instant solutions. So I think that's wonderful. So there, there we are. I think we could give up, take the rest of the week off, Jonathan. I think we've done our share with just the first reading. But then, um, and we've referred to Psalm ninety-five. Um, I mean, I think also in Exodus, we might, I think Moses would perhaps, I think many of our political leaders would sympathise with Moses there about people being ungrateful and and, and complaining. But um, with the John reading, which is, mm. as you rightly remark, is a very long reading. And of course, one of the problems with having John's gospel in the lectionary is he doesn't really make sense unless you read the whole chapter, um, which can make it hard. How how do you see that sort of idea of the long journey there in the encounter with the woman at the well? Yes, um, but I mean, at a very literal level, Jesus, Jesus is traveling, and he has mm. to, and he decides to take a shortcut on his journey, uh, which takes him through um, uh, the Sumerian territory, which of course is populated by people uh, with whom uh, he wouldn't normally perhaps associate as a, as a sort of faithful Jew. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm struck. This story gets used in all kinds of different ways as an example of good evangelism, as an example of mission in action, as an example of all kinds of things. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a, um, uh, there's a kind of a verbal and, you know, a, a parallel with about in water, in terms of water as well between this mm -hmm. and Exodus 17. So there's all kinds of resonance going on here, I guess. Um, I mean, in relation to what, what you were just saying about small boats, I think one of the things that really strikes me um, reading this passage is Jesus's rather gentle 
uh, and and compassionate engagement with this woman. Um, mm -hmm. She's a woman, uh, which in his culture means that uh, you know it's it's interesting that when the disciples come back, they uh, they're more worried about the fact that he's talking to a woman than the fact that he's talking to a, Samari a Samaritan. Mm. So she's got two things going against her. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Jesus, uh, if he were, if he were you know, would have been within his rights within the culture of the day in some ways to have treated her quite sort of dismissively. Instead of which, I feel like there's a, uh, you, you know, there's a really interesting and rather sort of vulnerable uh, beginning to that conversation when he admits uh, his own need and asks her to to help him, give me a drink, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I suppose one of the things that that sort of leads me to reflect upon really is the sort of the nature of power and how we use it. Uh, and I think um, thinking about my own context, one of one of my sort of uh, ongoing challenges, growing edges, as they would as they would say in the States uh, at, at the moment is around the issue of power and is around uh, my own use of it and my own privilege in having it um, as a white man, particularly Um uh, you know, I work in theological education and one of one of the real challenges that we have in in higher ed in general right now, but particularly in ministerial formation is to think about the ways in which what we teach and how we teach it privileges certain people over others, particularly white people. Um, and, and I think that for me, um, you know, trying to trying to be allow myself to be challenged um, about about the nature of whiteness, about the nature of my own whiteness and how I have unthinkingly sort of benefited from that over the over the years is feels to me like a really important um sort of way in which it, uh, you know in this season of lent but at other times as well i'm i'm being sort of properly challenged actually about my own complicity in systems and structures that aren't just and aren't fair um so you know i look at jesus engaging with somebody from a different culture here somebody that his culture taught him perhaps in some ways he shouldn't engage with in this way mm. and i see an example actually of someone laying his power aside somebody using his power uh, well not using his power really somebody sort of making himself vulnerable to another um and so to get back to your question about the long journey i feel like this is um you know this this is very much work that's not finished in the life of the church as in the life of the world uh, but i'm also really struck by the ways in which um these are questions which people uh are, are really reluctant to address and if i'm honest I'll, I'll i'll acknowledge that sometimes i feel reluctant to address them too you know they're they are what they might ask of us it's really easy to be the kind of christian who demands other people change all the time um, and there's a place for that i hope um uh, when you're when your own demands kind of bounce back on you and and sh shine a light on the things in you or in the structures that you benefit from that need to change, that feels like a much diff more difficult proposition. Um, and as I watch Jesus, uh, you know, in this very extended story, uh, engaging with cultural difference, um, I, I think I'm reminded again of, of how much further we have to go in, in, in terms of the work that we do around racial justice in particular. Though you mentioned, you know, that it's International Women's Day this week and, mm. you know, gender justice is another question where not only is there a long way to go, uh, we also have a whole raft of new questions um, that, that we're wrestling and grappling with at the moment, uh, particularly uh, around the trans community, for instance, where I feel, again, you know, there's a huge amount to do and... Um, 
I've been surprised again, as many are, I think, by the tone of much of that conversation right now. I think because it happens so much of it on Twitter, which is, you know, a, a pretty toxic space a lot of the time where even sometimes I think good, good, good hearted people say things in a way that's hurtful and um, uh, damaging to others. So, you know, I think I'm just re- reminded again and again of of how often these questions, political questions are basically about power. And it isn't always as simple as pointing the finger at other people, but also remembering our own complicity, our own, uh, the ways we've profited from systems and structures that that are biased mm. against others and towards us. And is there something as well about, and as you're, you're, you're right, this passage has been used in so many contexts, but that idea of um, Jacob's well, uh, a, a, a place of meeting, um, is there something about that long journey involving sitting down with those with whom we either disagree or have been taught that we should disagree with? Yeah. Um, and and the church often gets it very, very wrong. But at its best, the church perhaps can be a place where these encounters do happen. Mm. Um, you know, we've mentioned the dreaded word Brexit. Um, um, and just just a, one little story. Another ministerial friend of mine was saying that he was on a Viking river cruise once with, with his wife, and very very pleasant surroundings on a table floating down the Danube or whatever, just after Brexit. And there was a, mostly British people and one American couple, and they were having lunch. And um, and the American said, "So explain to me about this Brexit thing." And he said he never saw so many people almost die from choking on their boiled potatoes. <laughs> because, of course, all the British people just wouldn't talk about it at all because they knew it was. A... But at its best, church can be a place where we do bring together people from across the Brexit divide, across the gender divide, across the race divide, over tea and coffee and prayer and worship. And and and, and perhaps there is you know i've i've it's one of the few places that i would encounter people whom i fundamentally disagree with politically um and and i've had to recognize to myself that even though i i completely disagree with this person's politics they are a really decent human being who who's doing good work and 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 almost i think oh if they if, if only they were a bit nastier like <laughs> I wouldn't have to challenge my own preconceptions. And and is there something about that being the long walk, the long to 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 perhaps I don't know to what, to understanding, mm. to comprehension? Yeah, it's a it's a struggle that I'm undergoing right now, Jeffrey, because I I live these days in um because I have to live where where connectional manses mm. are. I happen to live in um a rather lovely sort of leafy North London suburb. Uh which in some ways is a real privilege and pleasure to live here. And in other ways, um, uh, I, you know, I sometimes feel like I don't have that much in common with my neighbours uh, politically, uh, mm-hmm. but they're lovely people and couldn't have been more welcoming. And, um, uh, you know, well, they're diverse, I should say that. But I'm I'm just conscious that I live in, in a kind of place that perhaps, you know, doesn't necessarily fit my sense of myself. And um, it's, um, you know, for instance, we had a, 
we we had a group of travelers that moved in uh temporarily to the to the station car park nearby and this caused enormous upset in the community and you know that our, our neighborhood watch whatsapp was alight with all kinds of sort of conspiracy <laughs> theories about what was going to happen and um you, you know it was quite it was quite hard to feel well how, how do we speak into this you know in terms of mm-hmm. uh how we might understand traveling communities a little bit better and and, and so on um but then equally, I have often found during the pandemic, I found myself really humbled and challenged by the generosity of my neighbours in terms of their, you know, care for communities of people who for whom lockdown was going to be really challenging or communities of people who uh, might have been really isolated, you know, taking food parcels, looking out for elderly neighbours, all these kinds of things. You know, in some ways I felt quite challenged by them to to be a little bit more active actually in my own expression of my of my faith so i think i think you're absolutely right um and and i think i sort of very passionately believe that the church ought to be the place mm. where people can have a glimpse of what it might look like to be living in the kingdom of god mm. and i know that you know most of us might laugh at that based on the churches we know but you know you know that that is that is the vision that's the ecclesiology i think of 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 the new testament that you know Mm. the church should be a place where um whatever divides us it's easy to see that there is something greater the love of god which unites us and reconciles us and it you know it's a foretaste of the of the kingdom in that in that sense so you know i i feel like that's um I, i agree with you that that's something um to keep a hold of I think in terms of working with people and, and talking to people who aren't like us culturally and politically and in all kinds of other ways, religiously, I mean, one of the most important influences on the way I do ministry um, has been some some exposure to sort of broad-based community organising. Uh, and that was something that began for me in the States when I was living in the Chicago area, um, but has carried over into, into my work here. And I think I'm just really struck by when we do that very Wesleyan thing of making common cause with our our neighbours, even if they're culturally or religiously or politically different from us, but when we start making common cause with them about the things in our own communities that we want to change, that we want to sort of work out, whether it's, you know, that English is a, an additional language provision or, you know, uh, issues of exclusion or whatever it happens to be, we start to find a bit like Jesus with this woman, that other kinds of conversations become possible, um, that it's out of that sort of vulnerability, and I, I that that happens. And I always remember, you know, uh, Luke Bretherton, who's written quite a lot ab- about this uh, and the engagement between Christianity and politics, um, talking at a workshop I was at once about interfaith dialogue and said, you know, community organising isn't primarily about interfaith dialogue, it's about working together for causes uh, you know in your local neighborhood that you all believe in and share he said but uh, it's often you know when it's often on the edges of a of a of of an action or a you know going to a meeting to speak or whatever that you start to have neighbor uh, conversations with your religious neighbors that lead into the kind of depth and vulnerability and openness to each other that that you know um a sort of staged interfaith dialogue re- rarely mm. rarely produces and i suppose he's talking about friendship really um um and that, that seems to me that seems to me so important um an old boss of mine 
um, well, David Hewler, who used to be the principal at Queen's, used to talk a lot about the importance. He used to, think, he used to say, you know, he thought that friendship was a really, really central kind of idea in the Gospels uh, that we that we had the church had somewhat neglected. And if we could kind of rediscover uh, th- this call to friendship across the things that divide us by the power of the spirit in the grace of God, uh, we, we might do a lot better at some of the other things that bedevil the church. Yes. Yes, definitely. And it is that, that's a simple act of sitting down with one another and, and listening with an open heart. Mm. And and when I, I invariably I've seen it in church life, at, again, at its best, that sort of moments, the kingdom of God. Think about um, churches local to us uh, that one has got a group of um, young off- of offenders doing their community service and there's there's cups of tea, you know, the, the church provide cups of tea and those moments of sitting down and hearing, listening to stories. Um, we're thinking about starting some, um, trying to support some asylum seekers here. We've got the food banks, of course, and always it involves, there's always tea and coffee, isn't it? Which is where friendship often starts. Mm. Uh, because we never, I think the church... And, and one of the things I like about the food bank model, it's never about charity, about doling things out. It's about sitting down and discussing needs, sharing. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and I do think, I think with the trans issue, with um, uh, with the gender, um, discussion about gender, with discussions about asylum seekers, I think so much of it is because we do not have those opportunities for conversation asylum seekers are they they are rapists they are all scary young men who don't speak our language and they're here to and 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 same with travelers and so many other it's only when we start to have those conversations that things can actually change so critical and you do wonder i wonder when i see you know the latest proposed legislation for instance about small Mm. boats which is all about as far as i can see which is all about um you know, targeting desperate individuals, as you say, mm. rather, in the name of, you know, getting at the people who actually exploit them. Um, you just wonder how many of those people, those who frame these laws have actually spoken to um, mm. and and how many of their experiences they've actually heard. And I say that not, you know, not, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm being too sort of sanctimonious about it. I say that because I know that my own views have changed when I've actually done what you just described and and sat down and talked. And, you know, I, I think back to, I, I was, as, as you said in my bio, I was, I was a prison chaplain in a high security jail for a while. And I know that my own views about the criminal justice system and the people who are in it mm. uh, were radically changed, not, not in a sort of bleeding heart liberal kind of way, but just, just mm. by hearing people's stories and learning more, about the spirals of poverty and addiction and dependence and you know uh, g- gang membership that bedevil communities where you know often young people um of good intent feel rightly that there isn't genuinely there's no choice for them mm-hmm. um if they're going to remain safe or even alive you know, but to involve themselves in some of the things that eventually lead lead them to prison. And, you know, you all, I also am aware from that how useless our criminal justice system is at actually giving those we imprison opportunities to to begin to begin a new life when they're released. I mean, there are there are ways of 
there are ways of of helping um, prisoners when they're released, uh, uh, but but they tend to be things that are a little bit more expensive in terms of how much tax we want mm. to spend. Uh, and so there are all these kinds of things where I just think, you know, um, what what you, what you've just been talking about is absolutely imperative for all of us in in terms of broadening our sense of empathy, our sense of um, the, the situation of other people and. I wish John in some ways said more to us about what happens in this Samaritan community after this woman has this mm. conversation with Jesus, because it's clearly remarkable and it clearly mm. isn't all his doing. She goes back and has a, as much of an influence as he does um, after this after this conversation. But, you know, there is there is a transformation here in um, between communities of people who for ages have been have been um sort of ostracized from each other by their own suspicion and prejudice it's really quite remarkable yes mm. and, and 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 from my uh, reflecting there my own time in serving in parliament being working very closely with mps of all political hues and, uh, and colors we often would comment that it was there was a difference amongst those members who came with real life experience or who had experienced some form of not personal tragedy, but who had had a disabled child, who had had who had struggled with some form of illness, who had experienced um, prejudice of some kind, and we often noted that MPs who had lost their seat and then been re-elected were much better to deal with the second time round because they'd had that experience. Wow. Lot and failure. Mm. Um, so I think I think that idea of of sitting down with people and the long. I mean, we're we're going to have to wrap up there. I'm afraid Paul doesn't get a look in with Romans, so we'll leave Sorry, Romans Paul. and the results of justification for another day. Um, but Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and we wish you every blessing in your work and your ministry. Um, if you have enjoyed this episode of Politics in the Pulpit, and we hope you have, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode with your friends. We also have online spaces for further engagement and discussion about faith and politics on Twitter at pulpit underscore politics or using the hashtag politics in the pulpit. We also have a Facebook group which you can access through the Joint Public Issue Team's Facebook page and the website jpit.uk. That's jpit.uk. And there's many questions I could leave you this week, but perhaps the one to leave you with is, if we are on a long journey, where are we heading and how can we support those who are in that long journey to, uh, to the kingdom? What is it that we are called to do and how can we support them through, prayerful, uh, through prayer and action? And, and leave you this week as we go into both our politics, politics and our pulpits with a blessing. The blessing of God the Father who made us one from every nation that occupies the earth, of God the Son who bought us for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and of God the Spirit who brings us together in unity, be with you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Jonathan. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs>